Hi, my name is Isabella Johnston, the Intern Whisperer, and today's tip of the week is coming from John Chen and his book, Engaging Virtual Meetings. In chapter two, which is page 15, John talks about the importance of having a good virtual presence primer. And what he means by that is you want to be camera ready. Don't hide behind the like what I'm doing right now. Don't hide behind the uh, screen where you can't see the person. You want to dress as you would for an in-person meeting. Check your teeth, your hair, and make sure everything in your background supports who you are. In this chapter, he has a wealth of information that will help you be a stellar presenter, a stellar speaker, and a stellar participant in your virtual meetings. So welcome to the Intern Whisperer. Our show is all about the future of work and innovation. And I'm really excited to welcome John Chin, the CEO of Engaging Virtual Meetings here with us. And I met him at a conference that um, I was there. I got, I'm going to hold it up. He doesn't know I'm doing this. I got his book and it's signed and it's got a number on it. So it's super, super important. If you guys get a chance to meet John, you should do that. Get one of these books that's signed. So, so welcome, John. So happy that you're here. Thank you so much. It's been so long since we were in Orlando, right? I know. It's been a couple months for sure. Yeah. Um, so our show is always about education, innovation, the future of industries and jobs. And we met at, as I mentioned, at Training 2023. That was the conference in Orlando. Um, so tell us about yourself using only five words and why those five words? Five words. Well, I really had to think about this, but uh, you helped me bring out an initiative that I've used a long time ago. So have you ever heard of the Johari window? I have not. Tell us. Okay. The Johari window was invented by Joseph Luft and Harrington Ingham in the 1950s as a model for mapping personality awareness. And this was introduced to me by one of my facilitators. And it says, describe yourself from a fixed list of adjectives. And then you ask your friends and your colleagues to describe you from the fa the same list. Mm -hmm. And I've had this uh, list out now for almost a decade, so I've had a whole bunch of people come in here. So let me just share. These are the six words uh, they uh, describe me as adaptable, energetic, giving, intelligent, knowledgeable, and powerful. Mm. I could see all of those words about you. And so the really cool part about this too is that there's a known to self and then a not known to self category. So in my blind spot here are some things here that people have said about me, but I didn't describe myself that way. And if I can look for the like dark reds and the, the bright reds, those are words that people said, confident, friendly, happy, helpful, loving, and bold are some of them. And though for those who really want to geek out on the data, if you go to the bottom of the report, right, you can see all the percentages. Holy cow. Right. So that's actually a really cool piece. So if I had to describe myself, well, at least I took the easier way out and said, how would other people describe me? And I think those are those are pretty spot on. I think the only one that's missing there is fun. Oh, I definitely would have said fun. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I went, me, yeah, you saw me at training magazine. Hello. Oh my gosh. Yeah. At that conference and I went, who is this? And I went over and you know, your whole booth was, well, first it was large and you know, you were doing a lot over there. And then there was this giant bin of books that went like this, you know, people love books. So, and you were one of the, the few people that I've engaged with at a conference that immediately said, yes, let me come and be on your podcast. And I am honored to have you here because you're kind of a big deal. Oh, <laughs> that one too. Yeah. Well, I don't understand why people wouldn't say yes, right? You're already asking, like, I, I met you. And then, you know, the other half, though, to be honest, right, is some of it is the, the intuition, which is you right. meet people and you're like, sure, I'll be on your show. As opposed to like some of the people you're like, mm, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're not, you're not in the mm category. I'm just telling you that, right? Oh, now. thanks. I feel so honored. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's really cool to um, be able to be selected, I think, to be on somebody's show because it says a lot that somebody thinks highly of you, but you are right. You do have to give a pause and go, is this going to be, does it make sense? Should I be on this show? Like maybe it makes sense. Maybe it doesn't. Right. <laughs> I just love that, you know, podcasting is really this amazing thing. And again, I finally started my own yeah. podcast, engagingvirtualmeetings.online will actually get you to my podcast. 
And I, I'll give you two parts too. One is podcasting is great because what you're doing is such a smart way to create content because you're just sharing others. I mean, yeah. it's really elevating. Uh, you don't have to come up with the content. You do have to come up with the questions. <laughs> yes. And the guests. Yeah, yeah. But the second part is that you, you know, share that person with the audience. And so that's how I really look at it is I tell people that when they come on my podcast, I said, I'm introducing you to my community. All right. Yes. Because of that, right, people get a chance to learn something about you, know something about you. And I and and quite often too, in a podcast, it is being a great interviewer is that you discover something new about that that nobody knew. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm except for maybe the, the interviewer. And so I think that's an important part. The interviewing skills is something that I think a lot of people underestimate until they try it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with you because especially if they they don't want to be on the video and you had asked me, is this going to be on video? Yes, of course, we should be, right? Should be now these days. Yeah, that's inclusive of the deaf community, of individuals that speak other languages. Like, we should all be. So... The fact that you said yes to that is is huge, but I've had some people because they have, I guess, a fear of being on camera, and I go, how are you on social feeds then? Right? <laughs> how, how did you survive the last three years? Yeah, yeah. Well, and I love your book because it talks about, you know, don't hide behind the screen, right? Yeah, well, you know, the whole part here is that we have all this fancy technology and, and in face-to-face, -face, I, I, <laughs> Robbie Samuel said that he just wrote a new book and he said, we don't walk around in, in like in person with a bag over our head. Why should no. we do a virtual meeting with our camera? Oh, that's a great quote. That is great. That is spot on. I'm going to have to make a Facebook reel for that. I'm pretty sure. Just, yeah. And put a bag over your head. Remember, you know I don't know if you remember that unknown comic from a long time ago. <laughs> that could go viral. I know. Yeah. The whole... Like be in all the virtual meetings with a bag on your head. Yeah. And, or you could have your guests do that and say, be the unknown guest. Kind of like yeah. the unknown singer. What is it, right? The well, you got to love this. So Miriam Hadness has a really cool community called Never Done Before. And huh. she just recently did an experiment where everybody needed to go into a Zoom browser and log in with the name XYZ. She could not tell who anybody was. Oh, that is so brilliant. And she said she got a totally different meeting because nobody knew who was talking. And with that anonymity, people, and, they, and then she facilitated some really challenging subjects. Yeah. People were more willing to talk because they were anonymous. Yeah, it's kind of like Halloween, right? When you put the mask on. Yeah, so there is some power in that anonymity. I mean, it's like why email, I think, was so powerful. It's like you could send emails, but you never really saw each other unless you're you know, sending pics. Yeah. And um, and so that you could form a relationship purely off of what people were writing as opposed to, you know, the traditional ways. And I think that there there is something powerful with it. And so I'm not saying get cameras on all the time. I'm just saying for the most part, though, you're certainly getting way more information. Like right now, you can see that I'm mm -hmm. using body gestures to say right. you know, how much of a big deal. This is the Obama, right? That the world is this big mm -hmm. and, and things like that. And you miss all that if I just turn off my camera. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, and we can experience some of that. I think it's different though. It's different. If I'm on a phone call, I know I can't see the person, but I do hear them. And I think the fact that when you're on a phone call, it's, it's certainly not anonymous, but you know that the people are there and that they're still going to be more animated in their voice. And sometimes I see if their camera's turned off and they're on video. Well, I think this kind of brings up too. Uh, my friend Aaron, Aaron Schmuckler, has a consulting company, and he advocates for a meeting where it's called he calls it mics on, and uh, or open mic. Open mic is also the other name, where if everybody's in a quiet enough environment that you, everybody should unmute. And the reason for that, especially like like you, you got this amazing mic here, right? And yeah. we're trying to demonstrate that, especially on podcasts, is that. You miss some of these things when people are talking, when everybody's on mute. Mm -hmm. like if you say something shocking and I go, huh? right? yeah. you miss that. And he said he's trying to get that back. He actually says like the mic is a barrier to to collaboration because we're not getting that that feedback. Mm -hmm. Whether you know, sometimes, again, it's like that pseudo nonverbal feedback. 
which is a sound or something like that. And he, he advocates saying, you know, especially in creativity meetings, that if everyone is in a quiet enough place, turn your mics on. So that's another experiment to try and see if you can get something different because these weird standards have developed, right? We were talking yesterday on a speaking program, like who invented the weird standard that you're going to talk for 45 minutes and then have 15 minutes of Q and A. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, yeah. uh, I'd never advocate for that anymore. I'm like, you should start engaging the audience from minute one. Yes. Yeah. I totally agree. I totally why, agree. Why wait 45 minutes? I'm already checked out. Yeah. Adults back in the day, the reason was education wise, um, it, you could retain a person's, um, attention span for a minute for every year they were. So five-year-olds, five-year-olds were good for five minutes. Adults in adult learning in my PhD classes, they said that adults are supposed to be able to sit for about 45 minutes and we'll say be engaged, but not. So when COVID happened, and we know social feeds have happened too, it's really lost the capability for adults to stay engaged because their attention span, TikTok, video, 30 seconds, 60 seconds. Yeah. yeah, I always go to movie cuts. Like if you go and watch an old movie and just count in your head when they cut, when they, you know, cut to another scene, it's like this one, two, 30, 35, 60, 65. Right? And now if you watch a movie like 300 or Gladiator, it's like one, yeah. one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, one, one. And so the cuts are so fast. And I wonder what that's done to our, to our culture. We so, have no attention span. Excuse me, I got a text. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> right? So I'm going back to your six words that you gave. Um, yeah. Adaptable. Certainly demonstrated adaptability here in this whole conversation because you gave your six words and then we went off in a, you know, another direction, which is great. Energetic, you're bringing it. <laughs> Normally I ask people to say, okay, why those, why those five words? Or in this case, why six? But in this conversation that we had from when you shared it to where we are now no all of them you just demonstrated them all knowledgeable intelligent powerful giving like everything is there well well thank you intern whisper you know the energetic one too is something that i think is so important on virtual because a lot of people said they feel disconnected on virtual and other things mm -hmm. and and i think that as humans we're designed to connect Yes. Right? And one of the things is that we have the ability to transmit energy, right, anywhere in the universe or the world, right, if we're connected as humans. And like virtual is one of the things that allows to do this. And I'll, wait, wait, again, uh, what city are you in right now? Yeah, Orlando. Oh, oh, you are in Orlando. That's right. Okay, so good. I'm here in Seattle. So it means we're almost farthest away here in North America. Yeah. Right? So about four, good 4,000 miles. And you can still feel the energy from me, yes. the speaker, right? And I can from you. And I think that's one of the cool things around virtual is that if you want to transmit that energy, right, it's on you as the speaker. Yeah. Right. As the one of us is the speaker. Yeah. Yeah. But even as an attendee, you can also bring energy to the meeting too, whether you're chatting or just even you're just, I'm saying I'm present and I, I'm not like reading email over here. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you raised something else that's very interesting because if you want a virtual meeting, to be interactive, you have to use as many of your senses as possible. So the fact that you're saying using hand gestures, right? Normally everybody sits in this 90 degree angle in a chair and we don't move. So the more we do hand gestures and we might, like I've got a window over here to my right and I can see people going by and they're waving when they do tours and stuff like that. So it's like <laughs> they're seeing us in the studio. So these are the things that can happen in a meeting in a real on the ground meeting, right? Not just virtual. Well, and there's a great program on LinkedIn called the Neuroscience of Virtual Selling. And it says that if you don't show your hands at least once in a virtual meeting, that you're 20% less likely to trust that person or buy from that person. And I've found that fascinating. And like, I, I teach people too, like in hand gestures, now you have a camera. So why don't you play to the camera, whether you lean in, right, uh, to the camera, or you even gesture to the camera because that, um, that gives, you know, a three-dimensional effect to the meeting, even though we're on a flat screen. And I just, mm -hmm. people don't, forgot. I don't know why they forgot. Where's all the Italians in the house? Come on. <laughs> right? We need them for sure. So that's good. Is this neuroscience of learning? Is that a study, a book or what? 
I was writing it down. It's a LinkedIn learning program. So if you subscribe to LinkedIn and have access to LinkedIn learning, I guess previously known as Linda. Remember Linda? My Linda. Yes. My, ooh, my Linda. Oh my gosh, I forgot. <laughs> yeah, that's taking it back, right? My Linda. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, so I, I do go through quite a few of the LinkedIn learning programs uh, as, uh, as a member from that. And I thought that was one of the better programs. Interesting. Hmm. I'm going to go look for it. Yeah, yeah. A good, good tip. So... Let's talk about your educational background. Mm. Where did that all start? I don't care if it's, <laughs> I think you were doing stand up when you were probably in kindergarten, but wherever you want to start and how did you get to where you are now? Because include that Microsoft journey, because that's always interesting because we think of Microsoft as being very, um, at least I do, um, very <laughs> corporate, uh, maybe a little more rigid uh, because it is so corporate. I don't know. That was a kind word. Okay. Well, I was getting ready to do this part though. You know, this one, I was a small child born in the South <laughs> of Stockton, California. <laughs> oh no. Stockton, California is my hometown, affectionately sometimes known as the armpit of uh, California because it's right in the center, right next to Sacramento, blazing hot. And, uh, uh, yeah, I grew up there, went to Tokay high school. I would actually became a skateboarder. Well, mm -hmm. while being in honors English, right, and honors math. <laughs> mm -hmm. So my parents got divorced kind of like at a, at a key age. I think I was like six to eight years old. And and so I did take a, a left turn at Albuquerque and added, you know, punk rock in and uh, skateboarding to my repertoire while I was growing up. So I was still getting like honors English or honors math and all these other class advanced classes. But I still felt like, you know, you can also still be pop, uh, part of this pop culture uh, it, which I thought was skateboarding. And again, coming from a divorced family, it's, it's amazing. I think almost all of my friends came from divorced families and we all kind of used skateboarding to create the family that we didn't really have. Yeah. And, you know, skateboarding to me at that time too became a lifestyle. Like it was like, remember when Thrasher magazine came out? Yes. And and it really, that was our Bible. Like we would see stuff inside of there as kids and, and look at that and going, one day we're going to be that. And mm -hmm. actually many, many of us got sponsored. So I, I went to school then to UC Santa Barbara. And while I was at UC Santa Barbara, I got sponsored by a local shop. And, and, and so did my friends also got sponsored by a lot of local shops. So it was really cool that we got to grow up and saying all this time that we put into a sport we were actually starting to get recognized. And then I actually, <laughs> I actually hitchhiked to a contest from Santa Barbara to Oceanside, got there because my local shop paid for my entry fee, got there like 10 minutes before the registration desk closed because I didn't have a car at the time, got in. And then out of 150 pro and amateur skateboarders, I finished sixth. And then I got sponsored by Santa Monica Airlines. And I don't know if you remember the movie Dogtown and Z-Boys. I don't, I don't know that movie. Oh, yeah. you got Okay. So put that on your list too. Okay. Because Dogtown and Z boys is a great movie about like kind of like rebels, right? Revolutionaries. And I think that you're kind of like probably affectionate to that category. So what happened was, is that, um, it was kind of Jan and Dean skateboarding prior to this, right? And the urethane wheel came around and changed skateboarding because you could now do like, it was much stickier. Like it didn't slide out and kill you. And what happened was, is that in, in uh, Dogtown, or Santa Monica, all the surfers, when they weren't surfing, started skateboarding. Mm -hmm. And then, the, so this guy, Skip Emblong, put a team together of these kids who were doing that, and they were using all this surf style, and then they got them to a contest, got them to this contest, and they all won. Mm. And the judges didn't even know what to do. They, like, looked at them, and they were doing these moves that were, like, like slashing on waves and stuff, and, and everyone was still doing handstands and 360s, and... The judges didn't even know how to how to to judge them, but in the end, they said, "This is so cool, so creative, so innovative, and so energetic." Right? We're gonna we're gonna say you're the winner. And I I was the third team after that that movie called Dogtown and Z Boys. Wow. Well, I, I wrote it down. I'm gonna go look for it. I don't know where it streams. I haven't ever seen that one pop up, but I'm sure it streams someplace. Yeah, there's a there's a documentary version and then a movie version. So then, what happens after that? is that I'm at UC Santa Barbara, I'm going to college, I'm doing this amazing skateboarding thing, right? And then I have an Idaho rugby player, because we're playing Halloween, and Halloween parties in Isla Vista or UC Santa Barbara are like 
uh, it was top three, I guess, in, in uh, one of the magazines. And a guy from an Idaho rugby team who was visiting slipped and fell because it rained earlier in the day and he fell across my knee. Oh. And then that, that broke both of my ACLs and that was basically the end of my skateboarding career. Oh, no. And so I did get it repaired, but of course it was never quite the same. You yeah. know, skateboarding is like these, all these high end sports require, you know, a fine tune of muscle and bones. Original. Right. They need original parts. <laughs> it's usually better. I mean, sometimes you can get through, but mine just never came back. So that's when I picked up computers. Oh. I looked around and I was junior year or two. And then finally you get the letter. Cause I was, <laughs> there's a great joke I used to use in college, which is like, Hey, you, uh, hi. Um, I said, oh, you know, the pickup line was like, what's your major? And she would say, undeclared. And I said, me too. <laughs> and so then the third year, you have to pick a major. Otherwise, they kick you out of school. And so I finally picked one. And I looked through things as diverse as philosophy, uh, math. And then eventually, I just settled on computer science because I just felt it was more applied. Right? You can actually do something in real time and then see the result yeah. of it. And I just enjoyed that. And so I went through computer science and uh graduated uh outstanding computer science student um got a chance to be on the 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 podium because i needed to say goodbye to the current chancellor because he that he or she got another job at a better college and so they uh, they had one of the students give the speech and that was me uh and then wow. and then we interviewed of course right in the year leading up to that and i ended up getting a job at of course at our good friends at microsoft yeah and uh i got in which was great i passed the interviews and not only did i get in i was a recruiter for 10 years well, i could see that yeah you i really good you bring the energy yeah i'd help choose who those people were right and then figure out then of course at that you know you still need to sell the candidate and saying do you want to come here or not mm -hmm. uh, and microsoft at the time it was you know i think i got in at a really good time you know it was just before windows 95. Mm -hmm. It was probably four or five years before Windows 95. And I think Windows 95 was definitely one of Microsoft's amazing high points. You know, the, the campus was crazy. Like, it was, who's, people used to, like, stay up all night to get the first piece of software. Who does that now, right? Yeah. Well, I don't know. Maybe uh, iPhones, they still do that. Yeah. And, that, and that's how you know you got a good product, right? Yeah. Is that, that you have such a fervent following. Uh, anyways, it was like that in, in 95, and I got to stay there for 10 years. I shipped 10 products, got two U.S. patents, and then led up to this point here that said, uh, I always knew I was supposed to do something. I just don't know what it is. You know what? I think that's everybody's journey in life. You know, they go, well, I'll try this. I'll try this. And they they don't understand their purpose. They don't know themselves. They don't take the time to know it. I bet when you were recruiting though, you were probably pulling in some super creative people that would have not been selected at other places, you know, that are looking for a certain type of person, right? You know, what's funny too, is that all the PhDs, the PhDs were actually the hardest to interview because they, a lot of them did not have applied skills. No, they're they so academic. Yeah, they stayed too academic, but then there's somebody would come into the interview, right? Here's an example. Here's one of my interview questions is that the person asked me a question. I suddenly realized the person during my interview was asking me a question that um, he did not know the answer to. Mm. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. He's actually testing me. So one of the strategies, and this is great for those who are interviewing, because there's a lot of people interviewing right now, by the way. Yeah, there are. Is that when I was interviewing, I spent 50 of the 60 minutes asking questions. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you don't know what the answer is, right, even if you don't know, stall by asking questions. I actually taught my son this and it worked for him. Oh, and <laughs> that's So good. I ask questions in 50 minutes and there's something called O notation in computing. Do you know what <laughs> notation is? Mm -mm. Okay, O notation says like O of N cubed, O of N squared. So that those are things that say as the a number of things that you got that you're working with in a computing thing, right, it goes exponential. Okay. To compute for it. And so like, that's a bad solution because as soon as it get it gets big, it's going to get slow. Okay. All right. So the best solution is called O of one. And that says no matter how much data there is, right, you can do this operation in one unit of time. Ooh, I like that. That's a very good production mindset to be in. Yeah. Yeah. Could you imagine, right? You have a 60 minute show, but it only takes me one minute to do X. Right. Yeah. No matter how long the show is and like, oh, that's a great solution. So um, so by asking this person question after question and question, we figured out that um, 
he had an O of one situation where he could take this resource or put it back in one unit of time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that was the solution I came up after stalling for 50 minutes. And how did I know I got it right? Well, I was leaving and I looked back and he was like fervently writing in his notebook <laughs> or on email. And, uh, and then I got the job. Very good. Very good. That's a really good tip. So here's the one that I've used to be able to get jobs when I've gone into interviews and it's like the round Robin, right? They're doing this. And at the last question of, well, this was at the nature conservancy. They said, well, you, I was applying to be a financial analyst and a grants administrator. They said, you don't have any experience as a financial analyst. Why, why would we hire you? You're fresh out of school. And I said, well, I believe I'm going to be able to be an interpreter for your people out in the field that don't understand this. So I'll be able to, you know, translate these concepts for them. They told me that was the answer I got. They told me that was the answer they were looking for. And that's why I got the job. Wow. So thinking creatively, and now I usually ask people when they're coming in, I said, what do you know about me? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> what do you know about my company? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> so what do you think you can take off of my shoulders so that I would say, yeah, I would want to hire you because right now there's nothing that you can tell me that you can do. That's a, a really good way to turn it around. Cause you know, I say you, you've got to go in telling me anybody that you can solve problems and take yeah. something off their shoulders. Yes. Interpreting is also a very significant job, especially with technology because there are a lot of people who don't understand it. So being able to translate, I mean, that's what a program manager for the most part uh, does at Microsoft, which is translate a human desire. Like I, I wanna be able to dial anybody in the world with my voice, all right, that's a thing. And so somebody has to come around to the other side on the tech side and say, okay, you gotta do voice and you know, they gotta have to deconstruct it with all the stuff that's gotta happen, right? Uh, but you know, so that, so that human thing was, can be done. Well, what's the name of your podcast? Because I don't think you've said it. You told me off the air, but you didn't say on the air. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's an easy one. Engaging Virtual Meetings Podcast. Oh, I know. well, there we go. <laughs> so original, John. So original. I love it. Uh, and so I, here's a great part, too. I only asked three questions and the three questions because people, you know, some people, you know this. You've asked a lot of people to interview. And don't some people have like interview anxiety? They, yes, like, they do. Ask you, yeah, they ask a bunch of questions. So I tell them this is so easy here. Here's the three questions. Number one, who are you and what do you do? Yeah. I think they can answer that one. Yeah. Number two, what has to happen for a virtual meeting to be engaging? Okay. I and number three, which is like one of your questions, which is, uh, so what do you think the future is going to be like? Mm -hmm. And that's it. It's all, okay. The first one, they should know. <laughs> that's their name. I hope so. Otherwise, they shouldn't be on this show. <laughs> right? The second one, it, it's an opinion question, you know? And the third one, well, that's still an opinion question because, well, I think everybody, even on your second question, will go to, well, this is what I like to do. Yeah. Maybe it's not that engaging, but they default to their preferences, not maybe to the group's preferences. Well, I actually turned it around too. And I said, when you're not presenting, when you're attending a meeting, right, what has to happen for you for that virtual meeting to be engaging? And that actually places them in a slightly different seat, not of control, but I'm the attendee. And that's even kind of sort of worse, especially for presenters, because now you're at the whim of whoever's running the meeting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I right. like that. How long is your show? It's anywhere from uh, 20 to 60 minutes. <laughs> you book an hour. <laughs> are powerful yeah. though those are really powerful questions well then everything else is improv yeah <laughs> very much so very much so so you went from this whole career path where you started as a we'll say a skateboarder because you were sponsored and then you went to college and then you also chose a path i think you would have done very well in philosophy though <laughs> You know what's great is that my middle daughter actually took that as a major at McAllister, yeah. McAllister from you know Minnesota University, and and she actually took it because um and I, she's defended the fact because like in an Asian family like oh man you're gonna take a philosophy degree right it, it, <laughs> and she came around and she goes did you know fifty percent of the Amazon hires right now of Amazon managers are philosophy majors oh that's so hysterical is that well, true. Yeah, I think making that. it up. That's a good. That's a good stat. I think so. At least while they were hiring, they're not hiring now. But when they were, 
Huh. Interesting. Well, anyway, I think that philosophy leads itself to being a stand-up comedy <laughs> person very easily. <laughs> Was Plato like a stand-up comedian? <laughs> Two philosophers walk into a bar. <laughs> yeah. I could just see it being something like that, honestly, because it's all about observation and about people. And I would think, you know, they would have been the original stand-up comedy comedians for sure. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Could you see the bill? Plato, Socrates. <laughs> Jim Carrey. <laughs> so um, I was reading one of your articles on your, your website, and it's, you shared that you're, this is for anybody that's not seeing you, you're a Chinese-American. <gasps> father was a paper son. What is a paper son? And he immigrated here to the U.S. So interesting. So, so did you know what a paper son is when you wrote that or when you read it, when you read it or not? I read the article. So, yeah, I understood what it was. Oh, okay. Yeah. But our audience doesn't, so. Of course, of course. So so a paper son, and here's the key, too. When I ask, right, most of you can just think in your head for a moment now, what is a paper son? And most of you should, you know, at least for my stats, say, I don't know. And yeah. that's okay, right? Because this is like a, a key part of here in American history of like how much is taught and how much is not taught. Mm -hmm. So uh, so let me just check these other stats. <clears throat> do you know the Chinese Immigration Act or the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1888? I do not. The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1888 at a time was, you know, when the railroad was the hot thing and uh, they were importing Chinese workers to uh, build the railroad and some white people or for the most part Americans just got pissed off and said, you're taking all our jobs. So they actually got legislation uh, passed. And so tens of thousands of people were immigrating from China to America to work and they, they, that all got cut off. Um, the limit was now 160. I don't know who it's came a random that. number. I know, 160. And so, but there, here's the key part, right? There's a loophole in the law. And the loophole in the law says, if you're the son of a merchant or a business person, you are a naturalized citizen, right? Because they were trying to keep lower educated people out for those jobs. like, And so they assumed that a business person was higher educated. Mm -hmm. So what happens is then now you probably, let's see if you remember this one, uh, the earthquake in San Francisco in 1906. No. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, good. There's a big earthquake in 1906, right, in San Francisco, and it it's not the earthquake that messes up the town. It cracks the gas line, lights the town on fire, right, which burns almost all of San Francisco down. Oh, so it wasn't the cow. <laughs> the cow? <laughs> there, I think that was in Chicago, though. <laughs> the cow that kicked over a lamp and it burned down the city. Oh. It was Chicago, yeah. Never That's mind. Chicago. Yeah. Great. Okay, so so that happens in San Francisco, and of course, it burns down everything, including the courthouse. Huh. The courthouse contains the birth records. So the courthouse came back after they established the courthouse, which had fully burned down. They had a temporary one, and they said, hey, everybody in San Francisco, if you had some kids in the last couple of years, when you come back in, we'll make you a, a birth certificate. So every aspiring Chinese guy goes, yeah, I got five sons. Mm -hmm. I got five sons. Right. So now they'll have all these paper sons. They never existed. They're all existed on paper. And then they were able to send them in the black market back to China. Right. Uh, you get a birth certificate. You get a book about your fake family because you have to know who this family is. Right. And mm -hmm. then you, you get a third class ticket. So that means you're with the steerage for three months to come from China to America. And so if you don't die of dysentery, you sit there memorizing facts about your new family from mm -hmm. this book. And then. Two days before you get to, uh, so you've been to maybe Alcatraz Island or at least San Francisco? I have, yeah. Have you ever been to Angel Island? No. Okay, next time you go, go. Because Angel Island is literally the island next to Alcatraz and it is the Ellis Island of the West. Okay. And so that's the immigration point. And so this tr this boat comes in and it's got to stop there because INS caught wind of this whole scenario and says, you guys are cheating. So they set up an, um, an, on Angel Island to... Uh, interrogate people to make sure that they were actually citizens. If they're cheating the system, they can be deported, right? And so so three days before you get to San Francisco, all the Chinese people get on this edge of this boat and then they all ceremoniously throw their books off into the ocean. Because you can't get caught with a book, you're cheating. Yeah. And you gotta sit here and memorize mm -hmm. all these facts about your house. So like simple things like, maybe you don't even know about your own house. How many stairs from the first to second floor? Where does your cat like to sleep? Right? How many windows are on the west wall? Just random facts about this house that if you don't know enough of them, they think that you're cheating and they'll deport you. 
it couldn't possibly be that somebody would go, I don't remember that. <laughs> That's not a good enough answer. Yeah. Yeah. Seems to work in a court of law, though, sometimes. <laughs> oh, I know. I simply don't recall. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Only if you're a president. So you get there, you're greeted by uh, uh, men in white lab coats, right? And they separate the men from the women from the children, right? They're doing that for quarantine. But of course, they don't speak any Chinese. And the color white in the Chinese culture is, is the color of a ghost. Ooh. This is your welcome to America. And eventually, it took anywhere from two weeks to 18 months to get interviewed, to finish your interviews. And 10% of those people failed. So out of 2 million people, about 200,000 got rejected and sent back. Mm -hmm. And the, I don't know if you know the Chinese culture about saving face. No, I sadly, I don't. I've had quite a few um, Chinese students that have lived with me, but not all of those things as exchange students. They haven't all come up in conversation. I have learned that I don't want to eat chicken feet. <laughs> At least you tried. At least yeah. I so uh, for the key for saving face is like uh, a lot of uh, Asians w or don't want to be embarrassed, right, or don't want to disrespect their family, so they want to save face. So what happens is, is when they failed, right, or you're going to get deported home, uh, a lot of them didn't want to go home and face the shame. So some often they would go and kill themselves. Yeah, that's so sad. And so the whole thing here is that my, nobody, including my grandfather, knew that this became a life or death game when you bought that ticket. Wow. So he's lucky enough. He gets through, knows only two English words, Susan City which is a city in California where uh, they had some family there. They worked for the army. Basically, you made about a dollar a week and gave back 75 cents of it in room and board. And over the course of five years, saved 40 gold nuggets, went back, left the country, risked leaving the country, went back to his village, got a matchmaker to get his wife, which became our grandmother. And the two of them, because she had a marriage certificate uh, and they have a first class ticket, they bypass the whole immigration system and they go and they have five kids, right? Uh, Five of them all graduated from college. Three, two of them are PhDs, and one of them is my mom. Wow. What a beautiful story. And that's how, uh, yeah, uh, I'm, that's how my grandfather was a paper son. Mm. That, that is probably right now the highlight of our conversation because it's, it's, oh, so, it's so rich. Nobody knows this story, although I have had people say it's ready to become a movie. You know what? That would be a really good movie, too. It really would be. Yeah. So when we look at that and, you know, your thoughts about Americans and how we could be more inclusive, how could we be better, better people for individuals that are not American, better for people that are American and they look different from us, you know, I, and I'm not talking just about white people or black people. I'm just saying just as people, what if we didn't see the race? We, we just didn't see that the race and the ethnicity, and we would just see people on the inside, you know, heart and mind. Well, you know, I, I hate to say this too, right? I, I subscribe to that viewpoint too. And now that the longer I've stayed in it, and I'll, I'll share a little bit more in just a second here is that, that also the, the beginning to, to be able to have a statement like I don't see color actually also comes from a place of privilege because when you're on the other side, mm -hmm. right, we don't have an option quite often to not see color. Now, I do believe in the other key piece here, which is, you know, we should look at all of ourselves as contributing, right, people valued, right, that you're here, that you're having an impact on yourself and, and others and, and what can we do to help each other with that. So. Uh, I, in my youth, you know, my family took the path of what's called assimilation, which is they said, let's just try and be as much like everyone else as possible. And in Stockton, not too many Asian people. I'm not going to lie. It's a farm town. Right? <laughs> and so it's pretty unique. You know, it's, I mean, you know, that you stick out. But uh, I grew up, you know, I, I, I tell some sometimes I once had to give a keynote in China. Of course, I had to apologize profusely for not speaking, you know, Chinese fluently, Mandarin or Cantonese. Um, but I love to tell them that I speak absolutely perfect Californese. Do you know what Californese <laughs> sounds like? We like you. It sounds like okay, Calif perfect Californese sounds like this. It sounds <clears throat> sounds like this. Dude. 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 <laughs> dude right so there's like 16 accents of dude and the chinese audience laughs at least with that 
so it gets back to that. And so I tried to ignore my, my cultural heritage for quite a long time. And only in the last probably eight years have I really embraced uh, Seattle's uh, Chinese community or Asian Pacific Islander community. And uh, I actually founded, co-founded a group called API Event Pros for event professionals. In the, <clears throat> in the history of Facebook, nobody have ever, has ever thought to create a group called API Event Profs, where Event Props is the most popular hashtag in the event professional industry. Mm -hmm. so, so we did it. And so there's just really some key parts, like what can we do to be better? I mean, one is just welcoming other people into other environments and sometimes going a little out of your way because uh, you gotta, you gotta make those people feel welcome in a space where maybe by default, they're not felt welcome. Mm -hmm. So I think that's uh, one key piece. The second is, I mean, the, the amount of hate crimes, of course, is like quadrupled over the last three years, mm -hmm. right? With, with coronavirus sometimes, uh, you know, associated that it started in China. Uh, other things that we do with there too, speakers. Right. I'm, I'm a speaker. I'm a National Speaker Association member. I've been speaking on the stage for over 30 plus years. And we have gone through conferences and evaluated their published speaker list and found that there was no API representation quite often in a town with at least six and a half to 20 percent Asian Pacific Islanders. And then we take the action step, which is then we can approach the organizers, some of them who we know. And luckily, we, we knew most of the organizers. They took immediate action after we made them aware. Mm hmm but they were not aware before. No. And so all of these things, right? Think of, so if you have a position of quote unquote privilege or power, think about what you can do to bring other people in, you know, become conscious and aware and look at that. Like even uh, uh, a large organization who clearly stated that diversity, equity, inclusion was on their agenda, then put out a white panel of three men and even the women in the audience, you, the murmur on the crowd, as well as the murmur on the virtual in the chat, like blew up going, you know, you it's the two things don't match. Yeah. And it passed a lot of checkpoints saying, how could this, you know, three guy white panel, sorry, white guys, but just saying if a if a group is saying it's diverse and, and it's not on stage, then what happened? Mm hmm. So, so those are all, I think, some of the easy things. And then, of course, coming up here in May, right, uh, in the next month is a Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And I'm on a committee where we produce uh, six hours of live content, and we're also the only group uh, broadcasting hybrid. So now uh, anybody who's on virtual can also attend this and at least attend it every year as long as we're broadcasting that. And that's another way is to learn something else. I can actually tell you the number one thing. If you really want to do something better, I have a friend who wrote a book where 10 people were part of hate groups and all of them renounced the hate groups, right? And he found out what was in common and he found out the one thing that they all had in common is that they all made a friend in the group that they thought they used to hate. That's powerful. So if you want to make a difference, if there's a group that you think that you're afraid of or whatever, make a friend in that group and you'll see that your most likely your opinion will change. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I was a public classroom teacher. And when I came in, it was the last six weeks of the school year. And I was told, just keep them in the room, <laughs> you know, cause it's the end of the school year and, you know, kids, they're high school kids. They're all over. And there were the um, different, you know, we always connect with different cliques, right? And there was this one group of kids that were um, goth. You know, they were always dressed in black and black lips and everything. And what I learned from being with so many different, whether they were the jocks, kind of like 16, what is it? Not 16, uh, yeah. The Breakfast Club. Breakfast, the Breakfast Club, Club. Yeah. yeah, that movie. That was the epitome of what I learned from there is that you shouldn't judge anybody by the outside you know, because we all look different. But where we are the same is we all want to be seen, we want to be heard, we want to be accepted. You know, and those things matter. They, they so matter. And if you can be part of the solution instead of part of the problem, it's not that hard. <laughs> Just reaching out. Uh, yeah, not that hard, but you do got to make a, a notion to do it and and then spend some extra energy like even now right I, I i have been caught multiple times not getting the pronoun they right uh because i'm not used to it it's like it's something i have to like 
50s plus years of training to get right and i'm being conscious about it i'm trying you know i'm really i let people know at least that i think you get a lot of leadway for at least trying yeah i agree i agree i know that when i practice my spanish around any people that speak spanish they appreciate the fact that i just you know try you know that's more than not or saying somebody's name that is different i say you're probably going to have to correct me i don't know five maybe ten times but don't let me off the hook make sure that i can pronounce your name correctly because it's important well it's one of actually our my key tips in in virtual is to use people's names because again we get the crib note on most platforms you get their name and then so the key is to use it and if it, again it, it might be a challenging name is uh, don't assume right, and ask them and say do me a favor could you please say your name Mm -hmm. right and with the intention saying i i want to love to hear your name i just want to try and get it right mm -hmm. so i have a friend actually jolene jang who's a diversity consultant and she i think it was a cambodian uh friend and he's got a click in his name right i think it's like there's a click and so she had to practice his name like probably a hundred times she took a video of him saying his name practice it so that the next time that she saw him she could say his name correctly. And they, she said that she made an instant friend because nobody had put that much effort that she had. Mm, that's, that's powerful too there. Wow. Such good stuff. Yeah. So I'm going to kind of skip ahead here. Um, most favorite openers that you use. Favorite openers. Well, there's the, the no brainer one which is kind of like, you'll see it here, but I'll tell you why the no-brainer one has a little secret behind it, which is like, hey, where are you calling in from? Orlando. Yeah, so what happens, we ask people to do that on chat. Mm -hmm. and one of the reasons why I do ask it now, despite knowing a lot of other openers, is number one, it gets people to chat when they haven't chatted. Mm -hmm. And two, it's because it's so easy. It's just like that interview question I gave you. Mm -hmm. What's your name and what do you do? Right. Where you're calling in from is so easy and innocuous that nobody will stop and think twice about chatting that. So once they do that, then you can actually go to a deeper question. So there are some things around openers that are important. The opener is meant to make people feel safe and contributing so they'll do it again later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such an easy question. And it also um, helps to pull people together because other people go, oh, Orlando, hey. You know, I'm from Orlando, so it does bring people together. Okay, but I do have a new, really cool new opener if you have a little more time. Yes. And for instance, on Zoom, we discovered the advanced polling features allows open-ended entries. So, you know, before in a poll, you had 10 entries and that was it. Yeah. Now you can actually kind of get a dialogue box and you can write up to like 2,000 characters or whatever. So we actually asked, like, here's, a, here's a, the, the, the initiative is called Guess Who? Okay. And so we do something and we ask everybody to type into the, the poll, um, tell us something about you that most people don't know. Oh, it's like two truths and a lie. <laughs> but not what happens is, is after the poll runs as the host, I can get a click a link and I get a screen full of the answers, but it doesn't tell me who wrote it. Mm -hmm. And then I go to the group and I just start on the first one and I said, okay, let's see who was on a sponsored amateur skateboard team. Right. And I have the group guess. I can't I, I don't want to say anything, even if I know. So, you know, even the wrong answers actually tell you something going, why would people think that I'm a skateboarder? Right. So mm -hmm. like they would go around. And so it turned into this thing that we discovered when we were just messing around with the advanced polls to be like one of my top opening exercises to really uh, for a group to like get to know each other, but not in a, in a non-standard way. And it's amazing. Mm -hmm. I like that. That's very yeah. good. Wait, what's, what's one of your facts, though? What's something about you that, that most people don't know, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I was born on a historic, in a historic Indian village in Kansas, and people thought I was uh, an American Indian baby when I was born. Are you Native American? I, had, I am not. Um, and I did the, the spit test <clears throat> with, you know, Ancestry.com and everything. doesn't show up. But yet I was born in a city with only a thousand people. It's called Medicine Lodge. We have family members on my mother's side that were buried in historic um, Indian graveyards. Ooh. Every four years, they do this reenactment of the signing of the peace treaty with the five tribes from the Trail of Tears. And so... 
when I was born, I had really long hair and they could put it in a ponytail and they went, is this a, is this an American Indian baby? Like what's going on here? <laughs> Cause you guys look white <laughs> and they couldn't figure it out anyway. Um, so I did the spit test and there's none that's in there. However, I feel like it's probably there. It just hasn't caught up with the DNA. Hmm. I think it's an interesting fact. That's a super interesting fact, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming you have some affinity, though, to at least to the culture since you. I do. Yeah. Um, American Indians. I I love uh, Latin cultures. And I also love, um, you know, I'll pick usually the things that are the very, the very most uh, family oriented uh, Caribbean. So I I just love their cultures. They're so inclusive. It's always like, you know, they hug you. You feel like you're loved when you walk in the room. Um, my half of my my uncle is married a Filipino woman, and they live in California. And so going to their places in California was amazing. See? Yeah, uh, so that's what I love. Asian Pacific Islander cultures. I mean, family and fun, uh, family food, fun as all in the in the three day most- Christmas holiday. Yeah. yeah, Filipino too. I think my mom went to a Filipino wedding, and it was like seven days of partying. Yeah, yeah, it's hardcore. It is hardcore. So, what do you want to be remembered for? <sighs> what do I want to be remembered for? Hmm. Well, the obvious will be around engaging virtual meetings, but let's go for the non-obvious, right? What do I want to be remembered for? Uh, can I tell you what I think you'd be remembered for based on my two interactions, this one and my previous one, and then, you know, what I've read, yes. obviously, um, I feel that what you would want to be remembered for is that you brought people together. Yes. Yes. That's, that's what, what I, virtual meetings are. <laughs> You're bringing us together. Well, you know, it's funny too. Uh, my friend just made a big announcement on, a, I have an engaging virtual happy hour every Friday, five o'clock, ever since March of 2020. I'll come. And oh, be there! It's uh, uh, every week. We never there's here's the whole key: no agenda, right? Almost yeah. never recorded, almost never live streamed. No agenda, and so like whatever happens during those sixty to ninety minutes is whatever. And you know, it almost died right with as as the uh, pandemic pseudo kind of ended. But but their people are still there, and these people who have been there like are really close and all know each other and. And it's it's really a big thing. And, and so some of the key parts for that meeting was that other people made connections through me, right, but that I don't know about. And that's what I feel like one of my favorite things is when, you know, two people like when I when I had um, a lot of employees, sometimes some of those employees became really good friends. And I was very happy to be the conduit to introduce those people together, even if like I'm, I don't know everything that's going on in that relationship. So. So, you know, as I get a little older here, uh, is that uh, legacy work is really one of the things that you need to always consider as you get uh, later in life mm-hmm. if you want to do something. And so so there's some there's some video stuff that I'm looking to do on that legacy side. And, you know, that um, that paper sun, like if I finish that paper sun into a book. Mm-hmm. Right. I could be done with where I could be. I could I could be done. Be happy that I made a contribution to our family's legacy and ideally, you know, something around history. And, uh, and I'm already, I, I gotta be honest. I, I don't think I have very many regrets. I am very happy of the things I've been able to achieve in my lifetime. Some of them are cool, like outward, like, you know, like, uh, two us patents, uh, but you know, two actual published books. And by the way, I just crossed over book number 10,000 and I heard the average for an author is somewhere around 300. Wow. 10,000 though. That's funny. Yeah. For anybody who's ready to write a book, by the way, I'm just going to share the story, right? Uh, 80, some people think 80% is writing the book. No, it's 20%. Writing the book is 20%. Selling the book for the next X years is the 80%. Of the work. Yeah, that's hard. That is super hard, super hard. So we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Transcend Network helps early stage startup founders find product market fit through weekly experiments 
receive fundraising support, and build a global founder investor network for edtech and the future of work technologies. The Intern Whisperer is affiliated with Employers for Change, and we thank Transcend Network for being a sponsor of our show. All right, and we're back to the end of the show, just so our listeners know. This has been the best conversation. I wish I could do Joe Rogan and we would have three hours together, buddy. I'm telling you, I have enjoyed every single second of it. And second, not minute, second. <laughs> so what do you think the future of work is going to look like in 2030? It can be anything you think. 2030. Not that far away. We're halfway through the year now. <laughs> and you're right. It's like seven years away. Well, you know, it's funny, too. If you're the last um, two years of the pandemic, somebody did a study and said that IT moved seven years in that one or two years. That's how fast things moved uh, during that time. And what do I wanna see? You know, What do I see in the future? I do see like in the immediate term, there's a lot of this tech that's gonna come around. Like AI, it finally kind of broke through. That's why ChatGPT is, is gonna be landmark whether you like it or not, whether it's accurate or not. It got, the, it got everyday people talking about AI because it's been around. Don't mm -hmm. get me wrong, like all this stuff has been here doing stuff for you. But now everybody's actually talking about it. And, and in technology, that's really one of the, sometimes the battle is uh, getting it adopted. It's not actually the technology itself. It's getting humans to actually want to interact with it. Mm -hmm. And I think that the AI and lots of other tools around here on virtual will help us. I sure hope it could help us have better meetings, such as imagine if it measured the talk rate between you and I. Mm -hmm. And if I started monologuing, it should give me an indicator uh, that, you know, I'm talking 60, 70% of the time, as opposed to, you know, you, we should be splitting around 50, 50 or so. And by the way, Phantom Note Taker I saw has a monologue timer. Did you see, have you ever seen no, that? I don't even know what this is. Phantom, Mon what is this? Phantom is, is like a, one of these things that's an AI bot that will automatically come into all your Zoom meetings, take notes, and oh, it has like a like dashboard. Otter. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, like and yeah. it has a dashboard that starts counting. So if I start talking and you're not talking, it'll start a counter, right? And tell me, how long have I been monologuing? And I said, I said it feels like The Incredibles. You know, remember The Incredibles where he yes. goes, and what did he start doing next? He started monologuing, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it gives the, the superhero always the chance to catch up when the, when the enemy monologues. So I think AI can do that. I think like, especially multi-tiered meetings, right? Let's say it's a 12, 14 person meeting. If it gave you meters about how much people are engaging and talking, it would do you the favor and say, you know, that um, uh, Frida hasn't said anything for like 20 minutes. So as the facilitator, you should come back in and just saying, hey, Frida, I'd love to hear what you have to say, whether you say, you know, you can also choose to say pass if you'd like. And that way, at least you can say I tried to engage uh, her and find out, you know, if they have comments. So I think tech will do that. I do then think now that things will get better around this virtual meeting space. So that's the AR, VR piece where someday, you know, the dream really is to have holodeck right, for the Star Trek fans in the house, right? Imagine that you had a room in your house and you could put something on or just do something. And all of a sudden it really felt like you were there. Like I was in Orlando, like I was sitting across the desk from you at this, you know, podcast mic on the other mic, like I normally would. And there were already been lots of experiments. You know, IBM did a whole experiment where there was a table and four people on one side and they actually took the camera angle on the other side to mirror the exact same table even though it was somewhere else mm -hmm. so people felt like well even though they're watching a video it looked like they were sitting across the table from somebody and so these things have already been done and they they can be done better and you know just for us to feel closer together I, again i don't think anything will ever replace in-person meetings because okay. Uh, the, the bandwidth, the bandwidth when you and I were in training magazine is nearly infinite, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, think, you smell things, feel things, right? Do things right, that, right. That's a little more difficult. But one, you know, every day as the bandwidth gets better, uh, you can add something else and, and maybe get a little more of it um, to have that experience. And I think those are the things that will happen leading into the future saying, how can, if, if we are virtually meeting, because the benefits are huge. Right. Right. I did not burn carbon to fly to you today. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and so, and, the, and then I also saved probably, you know, two days of flying, one in there and one back. Yeah. There's also the rare minerals, though, that we're using in this exchange of uh, technology. So I think that there's a trade sometimes. There's always going to be a trade, right? But it's just saying which one is better or worse and, yeah. and different, um, you know, and the time, the time value is always going to be there too for us, you know, as you get older and you get busier. 
mm-hmm. you spend less time connecting together, then it's cool that we can do that. Because I, I do feel that way in the last three years, right? I've had days where I can teleport to 13, 14 different locations in a day. Mm-hmm. Just run that many meetings. And while it is a lot, all right, it's, uh, I could never do it in the real world. I'm lucky to clock two or three meetings because of driving. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, so that's what I see in the future. I would love to see this, yeah, get better and be able to make more change, right, in an easier way. So what do you think are the problems? Devil's advocate now. Yes. What are the things that we should pay attention to? The ethics, if you will. Well, number one, the number one problem right now is people are burned out on tech. Mm-hmm. Right? Like like normal people who don't like tech had to learn tech or or be isolated. And that's pretty big. Mm-hmm. So they learned. <laughs> right? That's like they didn't want to, but they did. Mm-hmm. So with that, you know, this tech has to get better being designed for humans. Quite often, there are still multiple scenarios. We don't get enough cues to say, hear things like, we're on mute, right? And, and all of those things like that, um, uh, you want to be better. So I recently did a class that uses a lot of really advanced technology. And I found a cool secret, which is I thought people were burned out on technology, but I, I found a corollary. And the corollary is people are starving for better production on their virtual meetings. But as long as they don't have to learn something new. Oh, yeah. <laughs> have somebody else do it for them, but don't make them do it. And so one of the cool in- inventions that we use during that meeting is I actually can grab the chat window and I can put it on screen with me. And it sounds like a simple little thing, but it really radically changed. So like, here's an example. We put the chat screen and put it above a fire and we it was like a New Year's program. And we asked people, what did you want to burn up from 2022? What so wait want- a minute. It's like you're sharing your screen and so people can see the chat that way. Yeah, here, watch. I'll even show you. Let's see if I can get Okay. It okay, let's see if I can do this right. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See? Now, here, I'm good to go to noon. That was a chat, right? Uh, let's see. I'll say chat GPT, right? There, there's a chat. So this is cool. Like, we've actually put this on here. And so people in this New Year's example came back and they said things that they wanted to forget about from 2022, like that somebody had a a brother who passed away, somebody had, and so like the chat became really emotionally powerful. Mm -hmm. And the key here, that's just, that makes it the small difference is that the chat now is exposed. So even if you had the chat window closed, you're now can see it and read it. And, and so now it just gave it this different effect. So these are small things that uh, like discoveries, there's so much left to discover on virtual uh, that could be great. And I think many of us just need to pioneer and experiment and then bring those best practices. Kind of like 45 minutes and 15. You got to make something else like putting chat on your screen. Oh my (laughs) gosh. That could keep uh, some of the conversations. Hmm. That would be interesting to do. I'm going to try that. Yeah. It keeps it more engaged. Definitely. All right. So I know we skipped a lot of questions, but we had to. Uh, what ethical dilemmas? No, we did that one. What is the best mentoring advice that you want to share with our listeners? Mentoring advice. My my call this year is do one thing. Mm. And so so here's here's the example, right? Sometimes when people are great, it scares the crikeys out of others. And so here's a great example. Uh, this is my setup right now. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so for those who are on audio, right, I'm currently looking at 12 screens. This, I have actually three computers powering 12 screens, including like this is 64 buttons and, and an uh, audio track over here and a mixing board. And so people actually see this and they come back and they're like, oh, I'll never be John Chen. I should never do anything. And I said, that's not the message, right? If, if I had a challenge for everybody is I hope I show this to you so you get inspired to just do one thing. Yeah. Like you get a mic, right? There's so many people who need a mic. Mm-hmm. If they got a mic, especially if they're presenting, they just, the attendee experience would be so much better. Mm-hmm. All right. So get two screens so that you can share your screen and still see chat, right? And not lose everything. You know, whatever it is for you, just do one thing to like be better on virtual if you are spending now a significant time on virtual. Clean up your background, right? Use a decent virtual background, whatever whatever it is. So that's what we really try and communicate the message is just do one thing better. Yeah. And if we did that every day, what a wonderful world it would be. 
Uh, I have my, my my very good friend who used to be the chief uh, customer service uh, VP at the Seattle Sonics when we had a basketball team. He became the number the top customer service basketball team recognized by David Stern because all he asked his people to do was be one percent better than the last game. That's it. How can people get in touch with you, John? Well, carrier pigeon. <laughs> Seattle, uh, and then of course, <laughs> uh, my favorite is uh, you know I don't I want to meet your audience that this is for you. So if you're at this point still listening to this, go to engagingvirtualmeetings.com/meet m e e t, and that'll connect you to my scheduler. And I'd love to spend a half hour with anybody out there who's either got questions about virtual or just wants to say hi and saying I, I heard you on your interview and I just want to learn a little more. Mm -hmm. That's great. And that's a wonderful opportunity for them to meet you. So there you go back to your six words, you know, where you're, you're funny, you're engaging, you're inclusive, all of these great things um, that were up there. I'm going back to make sure I'm energetic, yeah, adaptable. Very <laughs> good. Um, and of course you said LinkedIn, you had all of these other ways that people can find you. We, we share this, it's on our close card and it's also in the social feed. So we want to see engagement happen. So we definitely share those links too. They're on our YouTube. They're also shared in our, uh, description of the show. So people can find, they should be able to engage with you is the point. Cool. Well, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the show. This has been so delightful. You have made my day, honestly, truly. And um, I look forward to being at your Friday events. I don't know how I get on the invitation list, but, you know, I'll follow up with you. Well, that's good. And I only have one other thing to say to you. Are you ready? Yes. Thank you for attending the performance. And a special thanks to all those who helped with the show. Little round of applause. <laughs> Thank you so much. I love it. You take care, John. You too. So we want to thank our sponsor, Cat5 Studios, and thank you to our production team, producer and editor, Josue Gonzalez, and music is by Sophie Lloyd. Visit Employers for Change at www.e4c.tech to learn how you can create real diversity and inclusive culture while skilling your people for the future of work. Thank you for supporting The Intern Whisper by subscribing to us on Podbean, our Employers for Change YouTube channel, or stream from your favorite podcast channel.